Well, good morning again, everyone. And um, Wendy, I didn't ask. Have, have we got any time constraint this morning? Oh, I never asked. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quarter past eleven. <laughs> no. If that were the case, you would you would never know what you are missing, and that's nothing to do with the preacher, but to do with the content. <laughs> so this morning we're going to begin our, um, our studies in uh, Revelation just in the seven churches. So it's just the first uh, three chapters and there are some leaflets just on the table out there if you didn't pick one up last week uh, so that you can um, see what's coming each week and um, read in advance. Today we're looking at chapter 1, which it sets the scene and introduces us to um, the author of Revelation, who is the uh, Apostle John. Now, I, I know I jokingly asked about um, uh, time constraints, but we do have a time constraint, uh, clearly. So this morning, you're not going to get a verse-by-verse exposition of the first chapter of Revelation. Uh, we're really looking at uh, highlights and I just hope that as we uh, go through this I can succeed in passing on to you uh, some of the uh, sheer thrill of reading this uh, chapter and the contents uh, of it. Let's begin uh, by thinking about the the author John. We all... um, know of the Apostle uh, John. At home I have a a book by another John called John MacArthur called Twelve Ordinary Men and uh, each chapter deals with uh, one of the disciples and um, he goes into their lives in some depth depth, both from the the New Testament (coughs) scriptures from uh, history and tradition uh, and so on. And uh, it's a really uh, interesting and challenging read. And this is where much of this comes from. John, as we know, was described as the disciple Jesus loved. Well, the Lord loved all the disciples, uh, and indeed all mankind. And what John did was, in his gospel, use this phrase to describe himself. Because the one thing he obviously grasped and had a real... Uh, understanding and appreciation of was of the love of God. And so we think of John as the, the apostle of love. Um, it's not necessarily because he began life as a particularly loving person, but he experienced God's love uh, through uh, Jesus. And therefore that it sort of <coughs> was a sort of hallmark, if you like, that he Uh, uh, possessed he wrote much of the New Testament one gospel three letters and revelation only Luke and Paul uh, wrote more and we think of him as the apostle of love because so much of his writing uh, speaks of God's love but if you look in his uh, uh, letters for example he balances that with an uncompromising desire for the truth 
truth and love, they go hand in hand. John, like all of us, had to grow into his faith and his love for the Lord. When the Lord first met him with his brother James, he described them as the sons of thunder. And uh, they were both ambitious. I mean, do you remember how they upset the rest of the disciples by asking (coughs) the Lord to seat them at either side of his throne in heaven? They made mistakes. John uh, um, rebuked uh, people who had healed in Jesus' name because they weren't amongst the disciples, amongst the apostles. So you see, John was just a man like the rest of us. But what he experienced in his life was the grace of God, was the love of a saviour, and he became an extraordinary man. And um, history records that. And of course it brings us to this extraordinary book in the Bible. One perhaps we're sometimes a little fearful of. Uh, But it's part of the scriptures and an essential part of the scriptures. History tells us that he outlived the other apostles uh, and died in AD 98. A revered uh, patriarch of the church. At the time of um, the revelation, uh, John was probably an old man based in Ephesus, possibly the leader of that church and the surrounding churches. There were more than seven churches around there, but uh, the seven churches are referred to specifically in, um, in Revelation. And many of these may have been church plants from Ephesus. We don't know much about why uh, John was in exile on Patmos, but it's clear that it was because of his work for the Lord as an apostle. This was the time of the emperor Domitian, and uh, it was at one of those periods where under his, this, that particular emperor, Christians were persecuted. And as I indicated in the all-age talk, Patmos was not a very hospitable place. It wasn't the tourist destination uh, that it is now. So that's the background to John and how he finds himself here on this uh, lonely island and has this uh, incredible encounter Uh, with God. And so I want to draw your attention as we begin to verse 3, which says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of this prophecy. So you're blessed this morning, Neil. And blessed are those who hear it and it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Now, one verse, believe me, there's a sermon there, but we're going to move on. But I have a picture here of the churches, groups of people like us, ordinary people, different walks of life, different experiences, different stratas of society, different ages, and in their churches, someone stands up and reads John's Revelation. That's how it happened in those days. Not everybody read. They didn't have uh, books. If they had a, a book or a scroll, they had one. 
There weren't multitudes of copies. And so within their gatherings, just like us, somebody would have stood and read those words. The one thing about that is it gives cause to pay attention because you're going to hear them only once. Perhaps you'll hear them again later, but you know there's not an opportunity, as you all have, and I would encourage you to do, to go home today and read Revelation chapter 1 uh, again. So here they were, having the words read to them so that they could take them in and take them to heart. We do still have a tradition of reading the scriptures in church. And that's great. That's something we don't want to lose, is it? It shows how we value uh, our scriptures and how we want to share them amongst one another. How we want to speak of them. But the point here, of course, is that taking to heart. This is echoes of our studies in James, isn't it? Where he tells us to be not just hearers of the word, but Uh, doers of the word also this is an encouragement to study God's word to become acquainted with it why? because the time is near this um, book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible with such a promise to its readers now I'm one as you know who enjoys this I enjoy the preparation. I enjoy being able to communicate with you what God has put upon my heart. But I am also conscious of James's instruction once again to be quick to listen and slow to speak. The word of God is described as necessary food. makes us who we are. It shapes our character and behavior. It dictates what our real interests and attitudes should, should be as a result of our feeding on this word, absorbing it, taking it in like a sponge. That's what taking to heart is. It doesn't just mean we hear it. It doesn't just mean we understand it. It means that it grips us. And I think that's what, when he says, blessed are those, or happy are those, that's what it means. It means that by taking God's words to heart, it has a result in our lives. It makes us the people that the Lord wants us to be. And therein lies real contentment. Therein lies happiness, even in difficult times. Now, This book particularly, we might say, well, I love reading. Let me speak for myself. I love the Gospels. I love the Gospel stories. Those encounters that Jesus has with people. You may say to me, oh, well, I love this book or that book. And some of you know also that I'm very fond of the Old Testament. But we find this particular book sort of, well I do anyway, in the, in the difficult category, along with some of those Old Testament prophecies of Daniel and Ezekiel. Uh, 
Not easy to understand. Not easy, perhaps, to get the order of events right. Not easy to grasp the significance of, of, of what we read and where it fits in time. We're afraid of misunderstanding something. We think perhaps it's a book really that's just for the scholars who fall within particular schools of thought. And we don't even understand the descriptions of those schools of thought, let alone understanding where we belong in them. So we're, we're kind of put off. We're afraid of it. The subject of Revelation is the Lord's return. It is end times. Something we don't talk about very much these days. We live our lives according to the plans we make, rather as if the Lord's return was imminent, which is how we ought to live. So, I've got myself a little study book. It's only about that thick. It's called Revelation Unpacked. And I'm trying. And that's all I'm going to say. Please don't come to me next week and ask me how far I've gotten, how I've gotten on. But I am trying to uh, get to grips with this wonderful book. Because more important than any of that, more important than, if you like, the technicalities of the book, is this. It's the subject of the book. And the subject of the book is our Saviour. How is it described? The revelation from Jesus Christ. The whole subject and theme of this revelation is the person of our Lord and Saviour. And that alone gives us reason to want to get in there and discover what it has to say. So, moving on from verse 4 to 8, John greets the seven churches with what we might describe as a benediction or a doxology. In this, he makes it clear what, that what is to follow comes from God and are not the thoughts of John. Oops. I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to do what some preachers do, which is put the watch in front of them and then ignore it. It's an old trick. So, we have these uh, words. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that? God the Father. And from the seven spirits before his throne, the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, first born from the dead, his resurrection, and ruler of the kings of the earth, the Son. There you have it, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Now you might be puzzled by the seven spirits. This kind of illustrates revelation for us, doesn't it? And perhaps what puts us off. Do you know the number seven appears 54 times in the book of Revelation? And as, as you read through it, you'll see a pattern of sevens throughout the book. Throughout the Bible, the number seven is considered to be the perfect number. The significance often is not that there's seven of something, but it's placed in Scripture as the perfect number, indicating perfection. In verse 4, seven spirits refer to the perfect Holy Spirit, here addressing seven churches. At least that's how I 
understand it. In his worship, in verses 5 to 7, John speaks of the Saviour as the one who loves us and speaks of our salvation, its cost, his death. And the results of that, that we are a royal priesthood. We have a royal and a priestly relationship with God. He gives God the glory in echoes of those prophecies from Daniel and Zechariah. And he speaks of his returning glory. And the question here is, are we anticipating that? Are we eager for that? Is that where our thoughts and energies and the way we live directed? And in verse, in verse 8, we have as a, what I see as a kind of endorsement or seal put on this, where uh, we see God as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Almighty. That's it. The Almighty, that's kind of, we think of that as a rather old-fashioned word these days, don't we? But have you noticed how there's this tendency, some people sometimes refer to the Almighty in a sort of flippant way? You know, somebody being interviewed on the TV or something, you know, and asked about their faces. Oh, well, I think when the day comes, the Almighty will understand me or something, you know, in a really flippant way. One of the things about what we read this morning is that there's nothing flippant about it. That this is dealings with a holy God. This is dealings uh, with, a, with a God who has no room uh, for sin. Um, and I, I just uh, feel kind of news events and the way things are going, it seems to me these days, that we're forgetting that. We're forgetting that we need a saviour. We're forgetting that we're a people. Each and every one of us individually is a person whose sin separates us from God. It seems to me that uh, your uh, conviction about something, your feelings about something, your views about something, that's what matters not what God says about something. If there's no sin, we don't need a saviour. All this means nothing. And we seem to have lost, sad to say, in in the established church, we seem to have lost, or those involved in it seem to have lost this sense of our sin and separateness, separatedness from God. And the need to find a way back to him. And there's only one way back. And it's the way he provided through his son, Jesus. And this is the person we've come to speak of this morning. And as we go through um, this chapter, this is where we get to this vision of John. And what we need to grasp here is not so much where John was, the physical place, Patmos, but where John was in the spirit. He could have been anywhere. His surroundings and his circumstances were of no consequence as he was lifted out of them by this glorious vision. Of course, John was clearly a man whose heart and mind were occupied with his Lord. 
He's a person who lived that spirit-filled life and found himself in such a spiritual state that God was able to use him to receive and record this revelation of his son Jesus. These events took place on the Lord's Day. And here we are on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, engaged with our Saviour, bringing him our worship, speaking of him uh, amongst ourselves. So John reminds his readers that he's, he's just like them. Um, and uh, that's important to remember, isn't it? Whoever um, the preacher or the teacher is, it's just a man. And uh, he tells them about this vision that he has. John had experienced something like this before. If you go back to the Gospels, you remember the story of the transfiguration uh, where we're told that uh, they went up to the mountain, uh, uh, John and uh, Peter and James, with the Lord, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And then uh, John has this wonderful vision of the, of the Son of Man we had read to us. And uh, I want to share with you uh, something from a, another book I have at home, a little Bible commentary by a man called um, Campbell Morgan. And this is what he says about this vision. He is seen as a son of man, nevertheless in his person, removed from all others in the amazing splendor of his glory. Human were breasts and head and hair and eyes and feet and voice and hands and mouth. Superhuman was the golden girdle and pure wool whiteness, the flame of fire, the burnished brass, the many waters, the holding of the stars, the activity of the sword, and the splendor of the sun. If time permitted, we might discuss each of those things. Um, But time doesn't. But what we have here is our Savior in all his glory. But it tells us things about him. First of all, it is a man that John sees. And we, we remember, because we're getting near to Christmas, aren't we? Emmanuel, God with us when the Lord, uh, when he was born as a, a baby. The Son of Man, that's the way that the Lord spoke of himself in the Gospels. Clothed uh, like a king and a priest. White-haired, not because he's aged, but because he's ageless. The ancient of days. Eyes that uh, penetrate the hearts of men and women, uh, and so on. This wonderful revelation that John has. And how does he respond? Well, he faints away. This experience is too much for him, and yet it becomes more wonderful as the Lord himself places a hand on him and reassures him, don't be afraid. I am the first and last 
I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. He tells John that he's the beginning and the end, the eternal and the unchangeable. The one who died and rose again to break the power of sin. He's eternal and holds the future in his hands. If any of us need some assurance this morning, if any of us need some comfort, take comfort in that. John, well, yes, he's, he's special, but there's a sense in which he's not special. He's just like you and I. And he had this wonderful experience. And the same Lord and Savior wants to reach out to you and to me that we can draw near to him. And we're going to do that now in that we're going to come to a time of communion. And as, I, as we do so, I want us to be reminded that the person we've come to remember is that same glorified, risen Christ that John saw. Yes, we remember his death and the manner of his death. In verse 5 we read, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Bread and wine, they speak of a body broken and blood poured out. We look back to Calvary and all that it entailed, but we look forward too, for that's where this book that we've begun to study takes us. And in Hebrews we're told to run the race of life. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a saviour who's risen victorious, glorified, who has secured a future for us. And we're going to worship him now in remembering him in this way in communion.